Hey guys, welcome back to the Rift Enlightenment Within the Divide. I'm your host, Sam Denning, and joining me today, finally, is uh, one of the guys that got me really uh, into doing these podcasts, my oldest brother, David Denning. So uh, today we're just going to have a a good conversation about uh, his hobbies, his profession, and anything else that we can find ourselves getting into. So relax and enjoy the conversation. Hey, Dave. How are you doing? Are we live? Yeah, we are live. Oh, yeah. Heck yes. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, getting me on your show. Um, thank you for uh, giving me credit, at least in part, for getting your show going. Yeah. Or getting you the idea. Uh, and also, I, I will let you know that uh, you may henceforth refer to me as Denrock. That's oh, what I'm sorry, I, that's what I'm I go sorry, by. Denrock. That's your handle? That's what I go by on my podcast, buddy. I don't oh, care gosh, what you call me. Yeah, Denrock. Uh, Denrock is this username that I came up with in medical school. <laughs> that's a, that's actually a funny story to tell. Um, uh, it was assigned to me by a couple of my classmates, and uh, they did that. There, there was <laughs> sorry. Uh, so there was uh, myself, last name Denning. Okay. And there was this other guy whose last name was Henderson and they called me Denrock and they called him Henrock. And I took that and ran with it. That, that, that was my username on anything online, anything to do with the cell phone or whatever and going forward. And what's laughable is you know, back then um, Denrock was always available as a username. Nowadays, if I fire up a new account, Anywhere, I've got to do some permutation of Denrock. I put my year of birth after it or yeah. put, a, put a hashtag or some crap like that after it. But well, you know, that's um, how I came up with or that's how someone came up with Denrock. You know, it was actually given to me by some uh, medical school classmates. <laughs> well, I find that up. interesting to think about, too, just that point you made uh, with your username. And you're one of the the you're the generation of you kind of grew up as all of this uh, technology started in its infancy and you've grown, oh, yeah, you've brother. been, you've actually been interactive with it too. It wasn't just like ha- passively happening in your life. You were actively engaged in it. That's right. And so people of your uh, age and range that were like that, you know, they've gobbled up all the good usernames, Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> good email when, addresses. Yeah. When it rolled around to yeah. my time, you know, it's, you, um, you can look at the domain uh, names. You know they're all gone. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before we get too deep into the conversation, <laughs> I, I wanted to say uh, specifically, I thought some good good uh, things maybe we could try to, to hit on. Obviously, you know, do as much talking as you want, but you're you've always fascinated me. You're eight years older than me. Um, you know, I've always looked up. To, you're my oldest brother. I've got yeah. Four. We have to get the math correct here because. Apparently, I'm getting called out by some of our other siblings, siblings about timelines and crap that I've cited on my uh, on my podcast. <laughs> I have like, also been called out. The thing is, I, I always I tell these guys, listen, I'm 45 years old. I'm in like the early stages of dementia. I am trying to recall these things as best I can. Um, but no, so go well, ahead. Yeah. So I, 
you have always had uh, fascinating interests and hobbies that you've done my entire life. You know, by the time I was in high school, you were in residency, you know, well, med school and then going into residency, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's pretty awesome. But that, that whole time, you know, when I was a little like elementary age, you know, we got a, and you may, you remember this a lot better than me because you were older, you were like in high school, but we got a super Nintendo and we'd had a Nintendo yeah. and, you know, you know, we had to kind of fight over it. I never got to play it, but you, you were always good at these things. You were yeah. always, uh, well, I think, um, so it's probably our generation or, you know, me to begin with that, uh, first saw these video games, in the arcade to begin with, and then eventually in the household. And, you know, I think, uh, I, me being at the very leading edge of this, uh, advancement in entertainment, yeah, that's the right um, way to word it. Yeah. I, I became very good with the, the hand-eye coordination and anticipation and, and, and reading, you know, being able to operate the joystick and in an assortment of buttons, you know, it just came, um, came pretty easily. And, I don't know how that is because no one, none of us had ever seen that before. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I remember having to beg our parents, like, please, please, please buy us a Nintendo. The, the kids down the street have it. And yeah, I think our parents were kind of anti, um, fun. <laughs> I don't want to say anti fun. I think, you know, they, they were, they, great, they but- wanted us to spend time in the household, uh, interact with our, one another as siblings, you know, I mean, our family, I, I don't, I don't know whether anyone does this anymore, but our family sat down every evening and had dinner or supper or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. ate together. You know, there was not one kid having dinner at this time and then going out to uh, some travel baseball team. And then another kid eating at a separate time and going to his travel soccer team. You know, like we literally, uh, as a family of five boys and mom, um, dad wasn't always there because he worked his nuts off. But we, we sat down at dinner together Yeah, every night. Uh, so give it, that being the background, like I think our parents were hesitant to get us these video games because they thought it probably detracted from family time together. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we never had anything other than uh, the bunny ears yeah, for right. TV. Yeah, we, we didn't never, have cable television yeah, and no, only, we only one very, TV. We were which, very, very late adapters of satellite television. And I don't want to say only one TV. I guess back then, not that many people had multiple TVs anyway. But um, people at my age were starting to get a TV. Parents would buy yeah. the TV and put it in their bedroom. Yeah, that would never happen. Yeah. But uh, so I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to articulate why I think that I engaged in all these hobbies that you uh, are alluding to. Um, and, I w- gosh, I wish I could remember the author. Um, but I did very recently, I'd say in the last month, read an article. No, I take that back. I recall exactly what it was. Now, I listened to that dude's um, uh, Mr. Lake's podcast. Mm. And it might have been the one that you were a guest on. I can't remember. But it, he made reference to um, the baby boomers and maybe like Generation X being the last tinkerers, the last doers you know the 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 last generation of diyers people who who can just figure things out right and that is exactly how i would describe myself i was a tinkerer uh at the core of myself and you know if i picked up something 
I wanted to figure out how it worked, what I could do with it, you know, every aspect of this thing, uh, any concept, any tool, any, you know, like a gun, a motorcycle, a car, you know, electronics, like everything that I encountered that I was fascinated with. I just thought I'm going to figure out all the ins and outs of this thing, you know, I'll read up about on it, you know, I'll try to acquire as many physical parts of it as I can and, and just do learn it from, from top to bottom. Um, I don't. And I think uh, if you, if you recall that discussion with um, it's Jerry Lake, yeah, right? Jerry Lake, Jerry Lake, the, the more recent generations uh, have lost that tinkering interest and the, the do it yourself interest, you know, they're, I mean, I'm sure <laughs> this has probably come up for you. You, you are a, a property, a landlord, and oh. I'm sure you've got calls from people to plunge the damn toilet. I have like, that's something I would never call someone and change a light bulb to, ins- to insert a plunger in my toilet or to change a light bulb or to, uh, you know, fix a dripping sink or, you know, change out an electric socket. I mean, like these right. are things like I know I can figure them out on my own, but I think that that's what's lost on these more recent generations. They're just like, screw it. I'm going to call someone to take care of it. You know, there are specialists for that. And and I don't want to uh, be critical of those specially trained people because they do provide a very valuable service. But I think that there's a lot of that stuff that just, just lost now. People are uninterested in learning about, the things they interact with in their day-to-day environment. But, uh, so he's getting back on track. Like I'm, I am a tinkerer. I was a tinkerer. I still am a tinkerer and I mess around with all kinds of stuff. And I turned a bunch of it into hobbies. Yeah. Well, you and I were talking just the other day, um, how we both, you know, you're a little bit more of a tinkerer. I do tinker too, but I also kind of, my brain never the wheel the gears never stop turning when mm-hmm. I'm oh yeah this is what we were talking about we're we're constantly thinking about stuff mm-hmm. I think about how can I make something better how can I do something better and oftentimes I, I I spend a lot of my time thinking about how interactions among people go like why someone's thinking I'm, I guess I'm more I that would be more of like a psychologist, even though I'm not a psychologist, but it fasc- yeah. it fascinates me interactions among mm-hmm. different groups of people and why people, th- you know, it's one of my little hobbies, but um, I'm always thinking of stuff and, and you and I were, I don't, I think that even in my generation, uh, you know, that's kind of becoming more lost. I mean, there's always people that are interested in stuff, but whether they pursue it any further than just the fleeting thought, mm-hmm. Like, oh, that was cool. That's cool. And then that's it. You know, whereas you and I, you and I go down the rabbit hole every time there's a rabbit hole to pursue. Yeah. Well, like the, uh, I mean, like podcasting, you know, we talked about podcasting. Now we have podcasting equipment. We're doing it. You know, we're not just. Yeah. And I don't know if you, you may recall the, the depth to which I thought out. The, the, the concept of a podcast. Remember, I think you even, oh, yeah. you even laughed at some of the stuff I talked about. And then I walked I, away well, with a little bit of it. But I, on my you know, I thought about the, the legal implications, the, um, you know, the, if we're going to use uh, audio clips or music, like what are the, the licensing issues? Um, do I have people sign releases, mm-hmm. you know, before I publish the interviews with them? You know, I thought, uh, what kind of a studio do I need to set up? Like what, what kind of sound canceling 
measures do I need to take? What sort of microphones? I mean, like, no, I, I, I dove into this and I read for days and days and days and days before I actually purchased something. You know, you were the person that convinced me to purchase this setup that we both currently use. But even before that, uh, you know, I, I had brainstormed and come up with all this stuff and, and, you know, looked at potential pitfalls, um, in, in, in producing something. So yeah, that's, that's an example of just tinkering around with an idea and then, I don't know if you can say that I've taken it or either of us have taken it to the extreme, but we're rolling with it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We have a a product that has an actual listener base. Yeah. I wanted to actually joke, you know, you've complained sometimes that you're having a hard time getting the people to show up that you've been wanting to interview. Mm -hmm. I've been wanting to interview you for a while, but it's hard to get you to show up because you work all the time. You've got twins Oh, dear um, gosh, and they're young right. and you're using some of your spare time. If you have any recording your own podcast, yeah. so it's hard, it's hard which, to even um, do this with you, which are lengthy apparently. That's oh, that, a, one well, of the criticisms I've had. I want to say, <laughs> you know, cause I understand the, 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 the point of shorter podcasts and I understand, I understand the point of not worrying about time and just talking. It, it all depends on what you, in my opinion, you know, just your content, what is it you're trying to say or do and, yeah. But for me personally, where I run, you know, lawn business and especially in the summer, I can put those and I hate to shamelessly plug Apple products, but the Apple AirPod Pros with the noise canceling, it I can ride my huge mowers and turn mm-hmm. that noise and I don't bear it's just a hum. So I'm on I, I literally I can listen to a three hour podcast and it's to me it's amazing. It makes my day just totally go away. Oh, absolutely. I, I guess it's almost like a truck driver. I'm 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 constantly able to Yeah, so listen. I uh, most commonly listen for roughly an hour at a time because that's my uh, quote commute to and from work, if you will. Um, I just heard, uh, I, can't, I know I keep tossing these references out there, uh, but I think it was Ben Shapiro the other day talked about how um, people have lost interest in the quote mainstream media you know, especially your NBCs, ABCs, CBSs, and Fox. Um, and they've gone to consuming the so-called long format, uh, independent podcasts for their news, for their entertainment, whatever. And so that the, the thing that I took from that is the, the, the term long format. And to me, that's kind of an open-ended thing. There's not a time constraint at all. You know, you think of you watch your local news or you watch the uh, evening national news that you've got a time constraint there, 30 minutes or, you know, for the national mm-hmm. news or, you know, it's, I think it's gone up to like what, six or eight 30 minute segments for your local news. But anyhow, like these um, these broadcasts are very time constrained. And I think therefore their their, their content is very uh, curated mm-hmm. and it may not necessarily be curated towards what you want. You know, so, so people are branching out to these long format podcasts where people can just go on and on and on and on and dig really deep into topics and, and just in, and, and, and unearth a right. lot of and I think, really interesting. And I think stuff. the appeal to it also that compounds with it makes it even more, uh, appealing to everybody is it's on demand, just, on demand, absolutely. Yeah, just like yeah. you know Netflix, just like so. Not only you know they're able to choose and consume 
the types of things they want and or, or even experiment with and, and most of the time it's free and that you can just do mm-hmm. it. Oh, I, I really don't like what this guy's talking about or that topic was stupid or whatever. It's really we've really liberated it seems like everyone as far as people now have the choice to be able to uh you know with this podcasting sort of stuff uh and with everything movies everything people are able to consume just about anything on demand i mean hell they can even cons- we can now consume most of our favorite restaurants even fast food within yeah. 15 minutes at all times mm-hmm. whenever mm-hmm. we want it yeah um Gosh, speaking to that, there's this place in Charleston that I've absolutely fallen in love with. Um, and I think I can feel free to give them a plug. I mean, obviously, neither of us are deriving any kind of advertisement revenue from them. But uh, it's this little place called the Melange Cafe. Hmm. And uh, I was first drawn to this because they had some, I had a random Facebook thing show up in my news feed that, uh, you know, this this place near you is having Taco Tuesday. And um, I was at work and I was on call and just to make a long story short, when, when we're on call during the weekdays, they give us a break midday where we can just turn off the pager, turn off the hospital phone, just chillax for like three, four hours. It breaks the day up into two doable portions. Manageable. uh, Otherwise it would be 24 hours straight of just bullshit. But anyways, so this day I was on call and I saw this come up on Facebook, this, you know, this Melange Cafe having Taco Tuesday. I said, that's where I'm having lunch. I I want to support this uh, local business. And this was post-COVID, by the way. So, was, you know, with social distancing and mask wearing and all this. And I looked at their website and they said, yeah, you can do curbside. And, and up to that point, I'd never done curbside pickup. I didn't know what that meant. And literally what that is, is you phone in the order. And, um, they, you pull up to the business at the curb, you know, they said, listen, you, you know where we are. You pull up to the curb in front of our place, turn your four way flashers on and someone will come out to you. They took my credit card, uh, went took it back inside swiped it and came back out with the food. Wow. That was it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're talking about on demand mm-hmm. with the restaurants, that's about as absolutely on demand as it can be. Because I'm going to tell you what, I called him and said, here's my order. And they said, when do you want to pick it up? I said, how soon can you have it ready? And they said, buddy, we can have it ready in two minutes. Yeah. I said, okay, well, that's how far away I am from you. Like going from the hospital's parking lot yeah. to them. And the transaction literally took 30 seconds. Yeah, it's 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 crazy with that, with food the way that it is, with everything being consumed the way it is. You know, never before in the world have we had so much available free time yeah, because right. we're able to consolidate all of our time. Mm-hmm. Like, I know this is kind of going down this rabbit hole, this conversation, but like, it's fa- it's fascinating mm-hmm. to me that we've now freed up all this time because you can now, you don't have to, for instance, when you talk about TV shows, you don't have to wait around until seven o'clock to see the show. You can watch it when yeah. you have the time and then you can use that other time to do something else. Um, it's really mm-hmm. freed up a considerable amount of time. Unfortunately, I don't know if we're necessarily being more productive with that, time, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. You know, that brings up another, um, another thing that will age me. And I love talking about these things, by the way. Um, and you may or may not remember this cause you're eight years younger than I, uh, 
but it used to be if you wanted to uh, record a, it, well, it used to be if you wanted to watch a TV show at any other time than when it was broadcast, you had to record it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we were growing up, or at least when I was growing up, that was in a form of either Betamax or VHS uh, cassette tapes. And you had to program your recorder to to start at this time. And you had to make sure that your television set was set to that channel and it would record it. I do remember now, this. How, now, how many chances were there to fuck that up? So first of all, someone else could have changed the channel on the television throughout the day. You know, you could have had like a power outage that, you know, just like a little blip, uh, you know, that made your VCR reset, you know, <laughs> yeah. where it is flashing 12 o'clock on the screen. Um, you know, any number of things could happen that you might have missed recording that. Yeah, you come back to watch then, it, and it's all static. Yeah, and then the thing is, you, there's no opportunity for you to see that ever again until it comes up as a rerun, you know, uh, during, <laughs> one, the, during the downtime one, of the season. One thing I have to... Uh, on this note, which makes me want to laugh. One thing I love the resilience of the American people, <laughs> because if somebody brings up something on a talk show like this thing, I can't remember what it was, but some something political, but with uh, Larry King live, by God, some American found a fricking VHS recording that, in some that's closet. True. They, yeah. People, somebody cataloged it and they found it. And it's like, yeah, somebody was like, shit. But you, just think, of, think of how that has evolved in our lifetime. So, um, it went from having to record onto some tape media, you mm-hmm. know, this flimsy magnetic media that was just fraught with failure and, and problems, you know, then, uh, I think then the next stage in that was CD. Well, no, cause no one was recording stuff to CD like that was, Oh, you mean that recording way. from TV on to something? Yeah. yeah. So okay. then there was the whole TiVo thing. Yep, TiVo. You know, I was in college. For DVR, TV. the digital video recorder. And um, so that was a significant improvement. In that. So you didn't, you know, your TV didn't have to be tuned into any channel. You just, you got on this TiVo app or, or well, it wasn't an app. It was on the television, you know, through the device. And you said, I want to record this channel at this time, mm-hmm. this show, whatever. Um, and look at what it is now. Like, so we can still TiVo stuff. I mean, you can still digitally record shows that you want, but I don't, I would venture to say hardly anyone's doing that because you can on demand view anything, literally, uh, any sort of media, you know, visual or audio anywhere in the world. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. All of that. Um, but I want to get back to, um, yeah, so I think you and I talked earlier today about how maybe we wished we had an outline mm-hmm. uh, for our podcast. And you said, no, I, I just, I don't want to do that. Like to wing it. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say that I wing it. Like I always go in with a plan, but I don't have anything on paper that I want to. Uh, well, I did have some I things wanna, I wanted no, to say. Open it for me. What do you want me to get into um, some stuff? Because well, but, I. What I was going to mention, so I think you, at the uh, outset of the cast, you you talked about uh, you want to talk about my history a little bit, or perhaps my upbringing, or or what did you say? Like my um, yeah, I'll say it right my now. My choice of career or whatever. Yeah, well, I was gonna I was gonna ask you 
yes, we'll get because I think that uh, it, it's fascinating to, to know how you went from you know the guy that you were to you know in middle school, high school, into going to college, getting your. I know you have a degree in chemistry to go, deciding you wanted to go to med school. You know what got you becoming a doctor? Yeah, and then and all that, along so, the way, I wanted to. You know, like I, we've already discussed that you've had all kinds of crazy hobbies and I'll just throw a few out there. I remember you used to, you know, you still do shoot a lot of guns. You have a lot of guns, but you also, you know, loaded your own casing, mm-hmm, you know, your own mm-hmm. shell casings and had all of this stuff for that. You've done solar panels and the whole get up for that. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, you've done sports cars, rice burners. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you've got American muscle. Um, you've done you know, all kind brewed your own beer, you know, made oh, wine. Yeah, so made moonshine. So let's go back to let's go back to the high school Denrock. Well, this is pre Denrock. This would be the, just a high school Dave Denning. Um, it was um probably ninth grade. And um, little fact here. This is hard to open. Little fact here: I was the first, um, first class in the old Huntington High School um, to go to high school for four years. Did you know that? I did not know. That. Yeah. So w- when I was in, uh, you know, uh, grade school, in air quotes, junior high consisted of seventh, eighth in ninth grade. And then there was senior high, which was 10th, 11th and 12th grade. I completed seventh and eighth grade at Beverly Hills junior high school. Ninth grade. I went to Huntington high school. So after the conclusion of my eighth grade year is when they changed in Cabell County, at least I don't know. I can't remember if it was statewide, but at least in Cabell County, that was the year they changed high school to include ninth grade. So Do you, what year was that? Do you remember what year uh, that was? Well, I know I graduated high school in 1993. So go, that would have been 89 is when 89. I started uh, in the ninth grade. Yeah. So anyways, um, I was a jag off in junior high school. Yeah. I, I didn't have a purpose. I didn't have a focus. Really not interested in a whole lot. And uh, my grades reflected that, you know, I was just middle of the road student. Um, you know, certainly not in jeopardy of like having to remediate anything, um, but certainly not excelling. And, you know, I had some disciplinary issues. I, I spent my fair share of time in detention and, um, you know, maybe had a couple of runs of in school suspension. Um, but when, when I got into the ninth grade and got into this great big building down, you know, which I felt at the time was like right dead center in the middle of Huntington. I said, uh, man, this is, this is a big deal. And I realized that there was a curriculum that I could tailor to my own interests. And, um, I could, you know, I could take, uh, you know, quote electives, you know, in junior high, there was just a set curriculum that, that no one deviated from, but in this high school, you can do extra math class if you wanted. You can do extra science class if you wanted. You could do a foreign language. You know, there's some really cool stuff going on. And I realized that in ninth grade. Um, 
So, you know, reflecting, I might not have had this mindset back then, but reflecting back, I was clearly a scientist from day one, meaning that I was a critical thinker. I was an analytical person. Um, I was, I think, just smart enough that someone presented a formula or a scientific uh, proven theory to me. I could understand that and then apply that to any problem in the textbook. You know, mm, yeah, it was that stuff came very easily to me. And uh, so I consumed in high school as much chemistry, mathematics and physics as I possibly could. Um, and that's addition to the, all the other nonsense stuff like you had to take back then you had to do civics classes. I don't think those exist anymore. Civics was where you learned the civic process of like how you register to vote how people have the right to vote. Yeah. Electoral college. Uh, yeah. How the electoral college yeah. is put together. We kind of need how to start teaching that stuff. Again, why are there, why are there a hundred senators? Why are there almost 500, uh, us represent, you know, all that stuff. Um, you, there were home economics classes back then, you know, like where you learned how to work, in the, work in the kitchen, you know, how to turn on a, an oven, how, how to work a, uh, uh, a cooking surface, yeah, how, yeah, yeah, how to run a sewing machine, yeah, stuff like I did, that. Yeah, I remember um, that. But yeah, so I took all those requisite courses, but then all the other stuff, I just gobbled up what I could. And I was doing, uh, you know, advanced mathematics, you know, college level mathematics, uh, college level chemistry, college level physics in high school. And um, in fact, you know, I, I was offered a unique position, or I, I believe was unique in high school, uh, to be a lab assistant in the chemistry lab in high school. That was one of my senior year electives. Like, and I don't know if people even do that anymore, or is there even a chemistry lab in high school? I don't know. I don't. Um, know. But no, I had like un unmitigated access to the chemistry lab. And I, you know, got my hands on a lot of interesting chemicals and, um, you know, experimented with uh, certain chemical reactions and attempt to form different compounds at the high school level, you know. And I was busted one day for uh, stealing, if you will, a, a small vial or maybe just a dropper full of butyric acid. And, uh, you know, for the uninitiated butyric acid... So it's a weak acid. It's not anything that's going to like eat your skin off or anything or, or dissolve uh, anything else. It, but uh, it smells like vomit. Mm, I remember that. Okay. And my plan was I was going to uh, pour this stuff all over the band room. Because <laughs> those guys were just absolutely dorks. You know, and I thought, oh, what a great prank. But uh, I was busted taking it out of the <coughs> chemistry lab before I could actually affect this uh vomit uh inducing smell <laughs> that's like in the band room david you bring that shit back yeah. here you're like yeah you're right yeah so so anyways in high school i learned that i was a, a scientist uh at at my core a scientist so i took that into um into college you know i i scored very well on all my college entry exams and i probably could have gone anywhere i wanted but um i wanted to stay not necessarily local, um, but somewhere relatively close to home. 
However, there was no way in hell I was going to live at home and go to college. Right. Right. So I had, so I went to West Virginia Wesleyan college, which is you know, maybe a 150 miles from Huntington. And it was a campus, uh, or, you know, a student body that was not much larger than the high school that I had just graduated from. So it was great. You know, it's, you didn't get lost in the crowd. You had lots of one-on-one engagement with all the faculty there. Um, and I continued my pursuit of the sciences. When I entered college, you know, they, they ask you to declare a major. And uh, I said on day one, I want to do chemistry and biology. And there was maybe some hint that I would go into medicine, but it was not uh, 100% determined at that time that I would go into medicine. But I just expressed uh, extreme interest in chemistry and biology. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not. I don't, a lot of people probably don't realize this about my life story. I failed miserably in biology to the point that I had to withdraw from a couple of biology classes in my freshman year of college. Did you know that? You know, I don't know why, but I remember there was some yeah. uh, stuff going on. So, freshman and it's hard to articulate to people why I struggled with biology, but I will tell you this. Um, to me, it wasn't a science in the same way that math, physics, and chemistry was a science. Biology had nothing more to do than rote memorization. I, and, I actually and, would agree with you because I did horribly yes. in biology in college and you, I did great you had in all to, the other sites. No, you had to memorize all these um, parts, uh, you know, genus and species and kingdoms and uh, taxonomy, I think is what all that crap's called. You had to, you had to memorize the Krebs cycle, uh, the nitrogen cycle like what i can hardly remember any of this stuff mm-hmm. but like i was i was that, that is just how my brain is constructed i i've it's very difficult for me to memorize things however you know if you if you tell me um you know some uh equation from physics or chemistry or you know like i i remember to this day um the uh ideal gas law pv equals nrt and it pre- is pressure volume equals N is some constant, I think, uh, R, oh shit, forgot the R, but temperature is the T, but the whole concept behind that is, uh, if you have an ideal gas, a known, uh, if you know the volume and the temperature of that gas, you can calculate how many molecules of that gas are present. Mm-hmm. Or if you know how many molecules of that gas are present, you can, figure and you know the pressure, well, you can figure out what the temperature of the system is going to be. Right. Right. So basically it's, it's like an algebraic equation. If you know enough of the, um, if you know enough of the variables, variables. you can solve for the one that you're after. Does that makes sense. So, yeah. And there's a, the, the whole concept of the mole. And I know like we're, maybe I'm talking above people's heads here, but the mole in chemistry is what brings the whole periodic table together. So if you know the atomic mass of a substance and you know how many, um, the, what mass of it you have, how many grams or how many kilograms you have of it, you can do this equation and say, well, this is how many molecules 
of that substance or how many atoms of that substance you have. And if it reacts with, you know, the same number of atoms or molecules in this, given this, uh, you know, chemical reaction equation, then the resultant compound will be this and you'll have this quantity of it. Yep. Now that's a, like a huge oversimplification of it, but the concept of the mole is like mole short for molecule basically. And it, I can't, I can't remember what, who came up with that, but I do remember there's the Avogadro's number. Yeah. Three point. No, yeah. 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. Oh, power. right. Yeah. I'm sitting here about to say pie. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, funny. if you knew Avogadro's number, you could convert, volume of a gas to grams of a gas to temperature of a gas or you know blah 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 and you know i was into the metric system all this shit all of it fascinated me but biology i could not memorize yeah i was gonna say so did you drop out totally didn't didn't major in it no yeah i i withdrew fail withdrew slash fail so that was on the report card it's called a wf you know and that meant that you were failing the class, but now, you withdrew from it before the final grade. Yeah. You know, if you, if I withdrew from it within a certain earlier, period of time, it was, yeah, just, a it was w. just a W. So yeah. let me ask you, did you have any explaining to do when you applied to med school? Did they say, why did you fail this biology class? Or Yeah, well. Or did they just say, So let's eh. just keep going on this timeline in college and I'll address that question. So I realized, um, yeah, so I'm not going to major in biology and at first that was kind of a bummer uh, because like I said, I had some hint that I might go into medicine, but I wasn't really solid on that. Then I realized, you know what? The other sciences are really freaking cool. And I decided to consume all the chemistry classes they had on that campus and all of the mathematics classes they had on that campus and almost every physics class they had on that campus. And I mean, we're talking crazy amount of credit hours involved in that. And in the end, I wound up getting a, uh, um, bachelor's of science, a BS. So that's like more credit hours than a BA. I got a BS in chemistry and then I got a, a bachelor of arts in mathematics. And then I got some kind of, um, certificate. I can't remember what the heck they called it in physics. So like I had emphasis in chemistry, math and physics in college. um, yeah, so at some point during that college four years, um, I had to decide, like, what, what am I going to do with myself? And I had, I don't want to say I had a lot of pressure, but I felt very comfortable going into chemistry, you know, being a, an actual chemist. And I put some feelers out um, to you know, some companies in the previous uh, Chemical Valley around Charleston. You know, I talked to people from DuPont, from Dow, from Union Carbide. These companies are all gone now from, from the Kanawha Valley. But back then they're like, you know, they were very interested in in having a a young, freshly graduated chemist. And so I thought there was a lot of promise there. Um, but then I, you know, I, I I had these little voices buzzing in my ears all the time. Our father's a physician, our grandfather Cummings was a physician and I think it was a little pressure from grandfather Cummings that said, you know, why don't you apply to med school? See what you can do. So I took the, the MCAT and I think I scored relatively high. I don't think it was like off the charts high, 
but relative, high enough to, to actually submit an application. Uh, problem was I got the applications in late. Mm. So I got waitlisted at both uh, WVU and Marshall. I remember that. And then, um, you know, I kind of spent this little bit of time in limbo, not certain what I was, was going to do. Um, and then, you know, get a call from Marshall saying, hey, you know, somebody decided not to come here. Would you like this spot there? So I, I feel like I kind of just slid into medicine. Um, but had some clue all along that I might do medicine. Does that make sense? I, yeah. Um, but that's all just based on my, I, I think I am at my absolute core and at my roots, a scientist. Um, so I think that could have taken me in any direction, um, including medicine. Now, once I got into medicine, um, I, I had some struggles in medical school because this biology shit came up again, not necessarily as biology, but it came up that there was a lot of things that I had to just do that rote memorization stuff. And man, I'm telling you what I, I struggle to this day memorizing crap. I can wrap my head around any concept, you know, in physiology and pharmacology, you know, the ideas or what click with me, but I can't recite uh, all the brand, all the branches of this fucking nerve or this Mm -hmm. artery or this, you know what I'm saying? But there are those out there that that's what they do. And I think those are called orthopedic surgeons because they can tell you the name of every bone in the body. And uh, it's like vascular. Well, surgeons in general, I think those are those people that can memorize all that shit. You know, ask, ask our father, what are the, what are the branches of, uh, you know, the, the, the mesenteric artery or whatever. He can tell you all the branches all the way down to your rectum, you know, ask, uh, ask a neurosurgeon, what are the branches of this, of the facial nerve? Tell you all the branches that I might be able to tell you a few of them, but not all of them. But you ask me like, how do the lungs work? How does the heart work? How does the kidney, liver, pancreas, all that stuff work? I can explain that stuff to a person who's never even heard of the organ. Mm. Um, and I, uh, and I know this is kind of like, you know, pat myself on the back. I believe it was Paul Harvey. I don't want anyone to hold me to this, but I think I'm thinking it was Paul Harvey. Joe so, hold you to it. So yeah, one of our brothers, one yeah. of our siblings will fact check this, but no, there was a, <laughs> there was a really smart, very well-spoken person that says, um, it's only the master of a subject that can explain it to the uninitiated. Something to that effect. I know that's not verbatim the quote. Yeah. It, which makes sense. Cause you get it. it you get so good at it that you no longer see all of it as memorizing this, memorizing that. Yeah. It, it is like, well, it's like watching. I mean, it, it makes sense to me. The second you master something, it's second nature to you. Yeah. It, it becomes non-complicated. Yeah. So, and, and I have to be honest, this is something I take pride in in medicine is that I, I feel like I can explain any of the body's processes to any patient, and I'm talking about, you know, a person who's never been to a doctor before, 
you know, uh, a person who is maybe never, um, never ventured out of their holler wherever they are. You know, I can, I can explain heart failure to them. I can explain the problems of sleep apnea to them. I can explain why they need to get control of their diabetes. You know, uh, I can, and I hate to use this term, but I can quote dumb it down for them. I just like to say that I can articulate these things in their language. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like yeah. to call it dumbing down and I've layman's terms. Yeah. That's another way to put it. And, and throughout my career, I've got, um, I've had lots of feedback from people saying like, you know what? Uh, no one's ever explained it to me like that. Um, yeah. and that, those are gotta be good words to and hear. No, and it, and it, oh, I love hearing it. You yeah. know, cause I mean, one of my things is explaining to people like, I mean, people know that they've got to do better, right? They know that they've got to lose weight. They know that they've got to wear their CPAP if they have sleep apnea. They know that they've they've got to stop smoking, you know, blah blah blah, whatever. But they don't they don't really understand why, or they don't really understand the sequelae of leaving these problems untreated. And I think I've no, I don't know how many lives I've actually fixed because. Human beings being human beings, you know, once I um, open someone's eyes to this, these things, I'm certain that it's only the tiniest percentage of them actually go and make the lifestyle All you can do is plant the seed. But uh, when I tell people that, well, let's let's use uh, sleep apnea as an example, you know, and for our listeners out there, sleep apnea is basically when you stop breathing in the middle of the night while you're sleeping. That can be uh, because your airway just gets blocked off by your tongue or uh, your palate or just excess tissue uh, in the upper airway. Or it can be a central cause. You know, it can be like a nerve or a brain issue, which is very rare. But, you know, the problem is you you have, uh, you stop breathing while you're sleeping. Now, you <laughs> might say to yourself, well, that's obviously bad. But do you, <sighs> under- but do you understand why it's bad? Probably not. Um, what it does is it stresses your heart out. The And this is what I explain to people. Is this appropriate to even talk about here? I don't know. This, this is way off topic, but here's the issue. Um, when you stop breathing, one of two or both things can happen. So first of all, your oxygen level is going to go down. Okay. Because you're not drawing oxygen in. What that does is it causes pulmonary hypertension. It causes all the blood vessels in the lungs to constrict. Okay. Um, the circulation through the lungs is handled by the right side of your heart. And I think the, the lay people don't understand that mm-hmm. your heart is divided into two sides, two chambers per side. So there's four chambers in the heart. People know, I think, that there's four chambers in the heart. But they don't understand that there's a right side versus the left side. A lot of people just know that they have a heart. The right side pumps blood through the lungs in order to excrete carbon dioxide and acquire oxygen. The left side of the heart receives that oxygenated blood and pumps it out to the rest of the body's systems. So, and this is how I explain it to people, and I think this is how it, it sinks in and makes sense to people. So, the left side of the heart that's pumping out to the rest of the body, it's very muscular, right? Because that blood's got to go yeah. a very long distance. Yep. 
you know, so that, that the, the, the musculature in the left side of the heart may be uh, three quarters of an inch thick, an inch thick. It's like, and, and it has to do that. It's like doing these bicep curls. Your mm-hmm. bicep's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger the more work you do. Uh, and the, the left side of the heart is designed for that. The right side of the heart only has to pump blood through the lungs. That's a very, very short distance. We're talking a few inches in distance from, you know, that, that circuit of the heart to the systemic circuit of the heart. So you can imagine that part of the heart's not very muscular at all. In fact, it's almost paper thin. So if you ask that, so if you add resistance to that, like, so what I said, when you, you drop oxygen levels, your, the blood vessels in your lungs just kind of constrict, you're adding resistance. Well, that side of the heart doesn't have a lot of muscle to compensate for that. Okay. The other problem with sleep apnea or the other component is uh, obstruction, which means that a person tries to draw a breath against a closed airway. That's the, that's what snoring is, you know, um, that adds resistance to the airways, which translates into resistance into the blood flow through the lungs. And again, you're asking the right side of the heart to do more work than it's actually capable of doing leads to heart failure. Um, and I tell people that, like I say, you know, if you don't have your sleep apnea treated, either by changing some physical part of your body, you know, usually it's weight loss or there's even surgeries. They offer to remove a portion of your palate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll know somebody that's or, that done. Or you use a CPAP device, you know, continuous positive airway pressure. And they have some like mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. They have mouthpieces. Yeah. So those mouthpieces are just going to relieve the physical obstruction. So anyways, I told people, if you don't treat your sleep apnea, you're, you're going to remove years from your life, you know, and people with sleep apnea are those who unexpectedly die in the middle of the night. Hmm. Before I forget, I want to go back to some, something <laughs> that you'd said. Oh yeah. Um, Bring me, reel me back in. No, it's you okay. You know, cause this is about you telling, telling about you. Um, and this is not exactly related, but I just remembered a quote from one of my professors at Virginia Tech where he said, you know, you get a bachelor's degree and you know a little bit about a lot. Mm-hmm. And then you get a master's degree and you know a lot about a little. And then you get a PhD and you know everything about nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought, that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. So what, what is it when you get an MD? Yeah. Well, you know, you get, well, but you, and I'm not trying to put words in other doctors' mouth, trying to accuse doctors of this, but you know, dad would probably agree totally and wholeheartedly with what I am about to say, but medicine has become so specialized now. Like you were saying, yeah. those general surgeons have to know so much. So maybe they're more of a they, they, broader, but we've become so specialized that they, they don't know everything about nothing, but they know only one thing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it could yeah. probably be applied to some medical professions. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, no, that was my hand rubbing against the chair. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> so now you're a practicing anesthesiologist. You know, you it, it took you, it's taken you a lot of places that you've actually lived. It's taken you to up to Pittsburgh. And so like a lot of your years that you've already described, I was not, um, 
as involved. I was younger, wasn't really forming memories about what's going on in your life and our lives. Mm-hmm. They were they were somewhat connected, but you know, I was that kid that was ten years old when you were going off to college, and yeah, right. You know, I, I would have not understood it, it, everything going yeah. on. But once you started, you know, you were in med school, and then you. Um, this is from my perspective. You go off to residency, and then you live in Pittsburgh. Um, that. That was fun because I got to go hang out with you, help you out, see what you were doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I lived in Pittsburgh for one summer while mm-hmm. you at the time were actually a practicing. Uh, you were a doctor, like you were an attending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you were always a doctor, but you know what I mean? You were done with residency. Um, and that was, a, that was a blast. But through all this time, and this is one of the other things I wanted to hit on with you, and this is why you have so many unique guests so far, <laughs> in my opinion, you, you you make a lot of really good friends. They're always close to you. But you have tons of unique hobbies. And I am I have a lot of hobbies too. Um yeah. but you take them I don't like you said, I don't want to necessarily say to the extreme, but you also have a career that allots you you, you do have the money to do some things upright where some other people may only be able to like kind of scratch the surface of some of these bigger things like yeah. jeeping, you know, f- f- uh and you know, your race cars, your basically everything, you know, and let's just off the top of your head, name as many major hobbies that you have gone through in your life so far. And then later you can tell stories or we can talk about one because we could technically talk about that topic for 24 hours probably. Oh yeah. So, well, I would start with uh, the need for speed. That's a, a, what was that? A quote from, um, Top Gun, the original Top Gun. I feel the need, the need for speed. Uh, yeah, I, I graduated um, college and was um, very fortunate to be gifted um, a brand new sports car from my parents. Um, a Mustang GT model year 1997. Um, that still exists too. Yeah, but it hasn't seen the road in a very long we time. Tr- Joe and Andy tried to fire it up a couple weeks uh, ago. But anyways, Sorry. you know, I got in with, um, you know, this redneck from Wayne County uh, when I was in med school, Scott Maynard. Uh, he had a Mustang, um, a Cobra Mustang. I think his was, his was a model year 93, but it's the same body. The, our, both of our vehicles were black but different engines and you know both of us would talk shit to each other about which power plant was better and and eventually we're like well let's go drag racing let's go to the track and uh we i forgot that we you never drag raced that we day. never raced head to head but we had the time slips against each other right that makes sense. you're competing on time yeah and uh he was always slightly faster than me so like i said well, okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna do something to this car i'm gonna look into this see how does one make horsepower from an internal combustion engine? And I, I went down that path when I learned it's, it's basically a, an equation of the amount of uh, air that an engine can draw in matched with the appropriate level of fuel. You know, and if you maximize both of those, you're going to maximize power. Uh, so the direction that I went was I got a supercharger which basically pressurizes the air going into the engine. And then you add, uh, you know, electronic fuel control and stuff. And it it gives an appropriate amount uh, more of fuel given 
that increase in airflow and the, the, um, the gains in horsepower were immense. Uh, uh, th- these numbers compared to today's vehicles, <laughs> these numbers are laughable, but, uh, that, that vehicle in stock condition on the dyno, which is its device, you know, that measures horsepower from a car. Um, I think made like 195 horsepower, um, in stock condition. But when I put that supercharger on it, I think it went up to about like 320 horsepower. So the gains was like 130 horsepower. I mean, it was, what is that? Like 60 some percent gain oh, yeah. in horsepower. So did you take them down after that? Yeah. So I, there was a point in time I was quicker than Scott. Uh, then Scott took his project car a different direction. He didn't want to do forced induction. He wanted to be a, a naturally aspirated engine. So he, he bought a, a custom valve train, custom heads, custom camshaft, uh, and basically did like high compression, uh, normally aspirated engine. So what that is, you know, a high compression engine means that you, you, the, the cylinder draws in a huge amount of air and then compresses it down to a very tiny amount of air. And then, you know, gives it enough fuel to cause ignition, you know? Uh, so it is still based on airflow, right? Or amount of air entering the engine. Um, and he got, uh, I think he ran neck and neck with me. And then, and then it was things like, well, I'm going to run with drag slicks in the rear, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, I wonder if both it, of us ran dra- drag slicks, I think. And then Scott still drives that Mustang, doesn't he? Well, no. So Scott, Scott wrecked it like, didn't wreck it, like crash it into a tree or anything. But I think he was driving it one day and the hood flew off of his Holy Mustang. Crap. Smashed his windshield. It's like a Tommy in, boy. Like, <laughs> totally, like almost ripped half of the uh, roof off of the car. So he had to have a bunch of body work done. And, and then he determined, he decided at that point that he was just going to turn it into a freaking drag racing monster. So his Cobra doesn't even have the original engine in it. It's some Frankenstein awesome engine and i think his car makes over a thousand horsepower nowadays wow. does and he still have it do you he know? still has it but the thing is like you can't drive that around a car with a thousand horsepower yeah that's uh, awesome the hood flew off that yeah, that is exactly like did. tommy boy yeah <laughs> but uh, no so like but the the war that scott and i had between each other uh eventually got down to where like oh we're gonna run slicks okay well i'm gonna put two of those little skinny spare tires in the front, front, you know, to reduce the drag up there. And, uh, and then we were like, and then we hooked up with these buddies, uh, Nick Goff, who's like a local celeb here. I'm not even clear why, but, um, you know, him and then, uh, one of our med school classmates, Scott Collins were early adapters of the Japanese four cylinder turbocharged cars. And so we always made fun of them, you know, back then the only way to make power was with big V eights, V tens, you know, all this stuff. And, and these two other guys are like, well, we, we drive, um, back then it was the Mitsubishi eclipse. So that was a predecessor to the Evo yeah. Mitsubishi Evo and everyone, everyone's heard of the Evo, right? 
But back then, back then it was the, the eclipse and they were tuning these cars and they were getting crazy numbers out of them. And we went to the racetrack, you know, and they were just killing, blowing us away. Yeah. And so, um, kind of gave up on that. And then my car broke down, you know, I I had to move from Huntington and I kind of lost, um, didn't have time for that passion any longer. But then at some point in my, um, after I'd finished residency, this is, this is interesting. Um, lived in Pittsburgh and there's quite a bit more snow in Pittsburgh than there ever was in Huntington. And, um, I said one day, I was like, I, I want to get an all wheel drive car, you know, as a daily driver. I, at the time I had Nissan Altima front wheel drive and it just wasn't, I was getting stuck in a lot of places when it snowed badly. And so I went and went to the Subaru lot. Um, I said, Hey, I just, I just want to get a cheap ass Subaru all wheel drive. I've heard they're good. And, uh, this guy says, Oh, well, you're going to want to see this right off of the truck. They're driving this, uh, hatchback Subaru. And I was like, okay, like what's so special about this? He goes, this is the brand new, uh, redeveloped 2008 STI. And I said in the back of my brain, I was like, oh, oh, I've heard of the STI. I didn't know anything about it, but I've heard of that. And I said, in typical Denrock fashion, I said, okay, I'll fucking buy it. Sounds good. Didn't even test drive it or anything. <laughs> it turned out that that was a very poor choice to drive in the snow in Pittsburgh because it came with um, high performance, like really sticky, like dry surface tires. And... um but I very soon bought uh, a new set of wheels and got snow tires mounted on that. And I that remember was, when that. And that was the most capable snow vehicle ever. And when then, that car was brand new, I think it was, you know, yeah. you'd just bought it. You'd came down to see me in Blacksburg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was brand new because, I mean, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this guy. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> and you were that guy in the game of Frommel that crushed the beer can <laughs> one hit on your forehead. <laughs> You were a legend. Oh, the yeah. guy shows oh, up awesome. with a brand new WRX STI and crushing people in um, Frommel. But then, uh, so what happened with that car? And this is my whole need for speed thing. Um, I discovered there was a local Pittsburgh Subaru enthusiast club and all these guys, you know, had STIs and WRXs and they were tricking the cars out, you know, tuning them for crazy amounts of horsepower upgrading turbos, upgrading fuel systems. And I said, you know what? I can do this. And, uh, I started researching <laughs> and I'm, I'm picking parts off of these, out of these catalogs. And, you know, the first iteration of that car, uh, I installed everything on my own and, uh, you know, got it. I didn't do any of the tuning. I was always scared to do the tuning on my own, but I bet you I probably could have successfully tuned a car. Anyways, you know, that first iteration of that car, I, I had it tuned uh, with a new turbo system, new fuel system for, um, I think, just over 400 horsepower. And then one day at the racetrack, that motor failed. And um, and then that kind of coincided with us moving back to Huntington. Uh, so I put that project on the back burner for a little while. But when I picked it back up, I said, I'm going to make this car like, the best it can be. And I bought, I bought a uh, fully assembled rally car engine made by Cosworth USA, <laughs> dropped it in there, put heavy duty clutch in there, 
got a custom built turbo system, custom built ignition system, custom built fuel system, custom built intercooler system. Um, and then had someone tune that on race fuel, uh, up in, around Cleveland, I think is where the tuner was. And, uh, that thing made over 700 horsepower with that setup. Jeez. But the thing is like, it's just not drivable unless it's at the track and there's no, <laughs> there's no track around here. There's no rally uh, track. Yeah. Well, and, and, and we're not, t- I'm not talking about drag. Do drag you think track. it's faster than anybody else's STI in Huntington? <laughs> well, I don't know. Nowadays, mean? nowadays they're doing really wicked stuff with cars. Well, I know that the box, it, remember that the, the engine you bought came in a big plastic mm-hmm. container Yeah, that I have that container. It's cut and <laughs> it's in two pieces and I use it for my raised flower. Oh yeah. And the, yeah. yeah. That engine, I think, cost about eighteen thousand bucks. Wow, it was nuts. Um, well, so okay, so we've hit up on you. you racing is a major hobby. It's still, you know, can, can has consumed well, a lot of your your. I'll just call uh, that motorsports in general, and so okay. you can you can apply that to. So I've got a couple motorcycles, got a couple four wheelers. Yeah. Um, I love. My pickup truck, although I've not touched that thing as far as tuning or aftermarket stuff. Um, but that's only because I'm 1,000% pleased with its performance as is. You know, I was uh, wanting to get some more uh, horsepower on that van I bought so I can pull the trailer a little bit quicker. <laughs> I was thinking about supercharging the transit. Oh, geez. Now you need to go with a turbocharger kit. Turbo definitely dude that would be yeah i would look like the biggest tool yeah, I already so, do um, in that thing. so let's talk about uh what is another hobby you want to want well i to wanted you to about? name as many as oh, you name could. name as many yeah. Jeez, like well, what what all do you think i mean that's why i want to i think of things like you know you've always been a gamer so i'd say that's a hobby of yours you've bought all the new gaming systems and you actually and yeah. you actually play them well the um, thing is like but i've totally backed off of that yeah, well, see, um, all of all of these, in my opinion, you know, they kind of because nobody has the time to do all of them all the time. But the uh, the gaming stuff I did uh, right up until I moved to this home where I am now, and the reason I no longer do that is because the internet fucking sucks there. It is abysmal. I tried to game from there, but I either get dropped from their servers or my ping times are so horrible that I'm just far behind everyone. Like I, I played the first person shooter stuff. Like I was yeah. really into that for a while. Uh, you know, while I was at uh, my previous home uh, with a good internet connection, I was competitive and I loved it. But moving out to this place, yeah, you can't even compete and it's, and it sucks. I mean, just imagine losing every game and you can't get, you know, the, the mm-hmm. XP that you need to level up. And it just, it was awful. And, um, and I, I basically just gave up on it. And then furthermore, you know, there, the, the, the gaming systems have kind of gone away from the physical, uh, you know, CD based or DVD based games. They're all downloads. Yeah. And I can't even download a fucking game at my place. Yeah. It, it would take days. And I, I know, know that when you I watch, know listeners out there are going to laugh, but it would literally take days for me to update my Xbox at my house. Yeah, well, and that's when I just said, you know what? I'm not even screwing with the same. I've anymore. watched movies and TV out at your house, and I know we talk, but I mean, it, it buffers constantly. Yeah, 
No, it's awful. It's awful. And it's not ever going to improve because apparently I'm the only subscriber on that line. And <laughs> so it's not worth the time and money for frontier to upgrade anything for me. All right. But, uh, whatever. So, okay. Well, you know, gaming, uh, so gaming was big. Um, let's talk about the shooting sports. Uh, my gosh, I love firearms. Um, and I think, you know, if you understand that I'm a scientist, you can understand why, you know, the concept of ballistics and <laughs> explosives and gunpowder and all this stuff, it, it's, and optics, you know, scopes and sights and all this. Uh, it, it's very fascinating. I mean, that's, I don't know, firearms, firearms are purely physics. You know, you, there's not really chemistry to it. I mean, I guess there's a chemical reaction that happens when you ignite gunpowder. Uh, but everything from that point on is physics. You know, you develop a pressure head behind a projectile. And that projectile has a certain velocity, uh, has a ballistic coefficient, mean, meaning that it's going to slow down over time and distance, meaning the bullet's going to drop, you know, over a distance. Right. And, you know, your your rifle scopes have got reticles on them to account for the, the ballistic coefficient, to account for windage, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've applied the, the shooting sports uh, in – mostly firearms. I mean, I, I've delved a little bit into archery uh, and uh, compressed air uh, arms, but I, I'm talking mostly firearms. Um, you know, I've, I've competed, you know, just shooting at paper targets. Um, I've, and I've hunted, you know, and I, I'm, I, I hunting, I don't think I've taken the extreme. I mean, that, you went on that pretty difficult well, buffalo bison hunt. Well, I don't know if I would call that difficult. It was difficult driving there because it took us two freaking days to drive out there to South Dakota. Um, and then on the day that I hunted for the buffalo, my God, I think we hiked 12 miles. I can't remember. Like it was Holy awful. crap. Uh, and it was slightly at altitude. I think it was, it wasn't quite a mile high. It was like maybe 4,500 feet. Uh, elevation, but I, you know, it was difficult to walk a flat surface that elevation. Um, but no, yes, I, I went for a, did you have to like hunt them down or were they just standing there? Yeah. So this is where people, (laughs) no, so this is where people laugh. I'm not trying to, this is where people laugh. Um, no, they were just standing there. They're buffaloes are cows. They're wild cows and like, and, and maybe even larger than cows. Some of them, you know, cows don't run from you. You know, they just look at you with this dumbfounded look. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So no, I didn't have to hunt down them. We, we just had to find the one that I wanted. I, I told the guide, I said, so this is, <laughs> this reminds me, you killed it with one shot, right? Uh, correction too. But, and oh, I was just thinking of our brother, Joe, who does always give us grief. Yeah. Well, so I, I went, so this, uh, this Buffalo hunting trip you're referencing. I went with, uh, my friend, Scott Maynard, who I, a lot of my antics are with him. Um, and then he brought, uh, two of his anesthesiologist colleagues from, uh, his, uh, his workplace in Tennessee who are also hunters and firearm enthusiasts. Um, that set up, uh, they could only accommodate two hunters per day. So, 
day one, Scott and this guy named Tim went out. Um, and me and uh, Chad and then Gary Maynard was with us, but he didn't hunt. He was just an observer. So that's Scott's dad. We had to stay back at the lodge. But Scott and Tim took their shots uh, close enough to the lodge that we could watch them through binoculars. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's and, pretty and, fascinating. And, and I did watch both of them take their shots. Uh, they, I'm going to guess they were, I don't know, at least a, a thousand yards from the lodge. You know, but when, you know, when I looked at them through the binoculars, they were very tiny still, but I could see what they were doing. Uh, both of them took trophy bull buffaloes with one shot. They're remarkable shots. Um, then, you know, they returned and we, you know, they, they retold the story of you know how they hunted these trophy bull buffaloes. And Scott said, yeah, I, I got, uh, I, I bagged this one called old bill. He's one of the biggest, uh, trophy bulls out here. So the next day when the, the guide came to wake us up or well, you know, wake us up to come get us after breakfast, uh, it was me and Chad, our, our turn to go. And he says, so uh, what do you boys want to do? And I just looked at him and I said, I have to get a bull bigger than Scott's. Then big That's bill. all I care about. And he goes, oh, there's a few of them out there. But I'm going to tell you what, they're very uh, reclusive. They're hard to find. They, He says, you know, they stay on this far end of the property. And this place we hunted, I think, was like 10,000 acres. Wow. Was, I mean, it was huge. Um, huge by west virginia standards right yeah anyways so and and chad was on board with these like oh yeah fuck yeah i, I just want to shoot the biggest bull we can find so we hiked and hiked and hiked we passed all these separate herds of cows you know which would be the female females we found all these other bulls and you know this guy was like well this that's not them those are the small ones and finally, I bet it was, so we took off right at sunrise. So that's probably, I don't know, seven o'clock in the morning. And it was almost sunset when we came across this group of four bulls that were the, allegedly the largest on the property. Um, so sunrise to sunset, that sunset was probably around uh, 4.30 or 5 this time of year out there. So we'd been hiking around for all day, eight or nine eight, hours. Yeah like literally, literally nonstop. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let me take a little sip here. So Chad, um, Chad leaps forward. He's like, I'm going to take the first shot. I'm going to, I want the first one. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Chad was admittedly the least experienced hunter there. Um, but man, did he have a freaking cannon? I mean, we were all talking about the gun that he brought. He brought this Weatherby. I think his was a, a Weatherby um, 30, 30-338 or something like that. So it was a 30 caliber bullet, but it was in this huge cartridge. Um, and he shoots and misses. Shoots and misses. Shoots and hits, but it wasn't a kill shot. Shoots and hits it again. Wasn't a kill shot. Shoots and misses. Shoots and uh, so 
a whole series of shots and this bull is still just standing there. And we're all just like, oh, God damn. <laughs> I mean, this has gone totally wrong. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. Like as, as sportsmen and hunters, like we want this to go down as humanely. Yeah. As you possible. want like an ethical kill. We really do. And I'm not laughing at the expense of the Buffalo. I'm laughing that, yeah, this guy, it's kind of embarrassing. And it was, and it was a distance away. I think, oh, the, okay. I think the shot that we took was, it was over 200 yards, which again, compare that to what you do in West Virginia. That's, that's a pretty long shot. However, when we're, we're out in, uh, you can't call it the desert, but the rolling hills of South Dakota, like I mean, your line of sight is forever. So 200, I, I'm thinking we were like 240, 250 yards. It's not a, it's not a super long distance, but longer than a person coming from Tennessee or West Virginia is accustomed to. Right. Right. So I think that was his issue. And like I said, he was probably the least experienced. Well, no, he was definitely the least experienced hunter there. So anyways, um, he'd taken, I don't know, eight or 10 shots at this bull. And finally it goes and like lays down behind a pine tree. We can't see it anymore. So the guide says, all right, Mr. Denning, um, your turn. And these other three in this group of four were just standing there dumbfounded, like, like cows, right? They, they don't run or anything. So I look through my rifle scope and I tell this guy, I said, I'm going to take this one farthest to the right because in my eyes, it looks bigger than the other two. And he goes, well, you're goddamn right. That's the biggest one on property. I promise you. He says that thing's at least 16 years old. Did that? What was his name? Didn't have a name. Mm. No, no one named it. So I took a shot. Uh, you know, so the the guide put the range finder on it. Uh, he told me I I believe is like two hundred thirty eight yards. And here's here's the thing, my rifle was zeroed at one hundred yards. <laughs> Don't ask me why I did that. Like like I didn't anticipate taking a long shot, but I zeroed it at one hundred yards. Uh, what I was carrying was the brand new at the time, 375 Ruger, a very, very big rifle cartridge, uh, and an awesome rifle. And it hurt to shoot actually. But anyways, um, so I'm given this distance and I know that my rifle sighted in and zeroed at a hundred yards. I'm going to have to do some Kentucky windage. Do you know what Kentucky windage is? Uh, is it where you count? Uh, is it where you count the thing above? The, oh, it's a different scale. No, then I have Kentucky no windage is when you say in your mind, "Well, I'm going to hold the reticle six feet above the target." Huh? You're you're making an estimate on where to hold your reticle. Now, actual windage would be you turn the dials on your scope to go up and down or left and right given the distance in the actual cross breeze. That would be actual windage. But Kentucky windage is you don't touch the dials on your scope. You just move the You just rifle. aim at a point above the animal gotcha. or, or beside the animal. Okay. That make, yeah. or, so you're, you're making a, just a, a, a bullshit calculation in your mind <laughs> where you think the shot needs to be aimed at in order to, for the drop, you know, the ballistic coefficient to actually strike the animal. Okay. So I, I used, 
I said, well, I'm going to use Kentucky windage here. I didn't say this out loud, but I'm just saying it in my brain. And I'm, I aimed at a point, I aimed at the hump on the Buffalo's back. So if you see a, a Buffalo's got an enormous hump on its back, but the vitals are down, uh, on, on the part that's almost dragging the ground on, near its sternum. So the distance between those two points is like four feet. Okay. Where I was aiming at the top of the hump and then the sternum that's near the ground. Um, I pulled the trigger and I look and I look through the rifle scope and um, there, the, the, the things hemorrhaging out of its mouth. So the guide says to me, hey, kill shot, great job. And then we're going to go look for Chad's bull now. Well, we all kind of pick up our stuff and collect everything and start walking. And this bull that I just shot with an alleged kill it's shot still, it's still, standing. still standing there. and it's But it's blowing all this blood out of its mouth. Like, I mean, it should be dying. And um, God says, man... Everyone stop. Let's let's sit back down again. Dave, I want you to take another shot at this thing. I thought you had a good kill shot, but obviously I was wrong. And um, so, you know, I, I line up to, you know, take another shot. And this time I hold a little bit lower than the hump on its back. Pull the trigger, falls over dead instantly. So I did, I took two shots at mine. Now, Chad and I hate to tell this story because people listening to this are going to think it's just torture for the animal. But Chad, you know, we, we get up to within maybe 80 yards of his, we find it, you know, behind these trees. It's just laying there. Chad sits down with the shooting sticks in front of him, takes two more shots and you can see the dust flying off of the things back. Like it's, he's hitting it at this point, but it's not dying. And we're all just like, Jesus Christ, dude. Um, we get closer and closer to it. And eventually Chad just has to like, he's close enough. He can just shoot it in the head. Like between you and I, that's the distance that Chad gets. Wow. Just shoots in the head. And, um, you know, that, that guide is just like the guide was, I think absolutely nauseated at this point because, you know, he's, he's there to help us humanely take these animals. Um, and I think the presumption that he made was that all of us were could actually shoot, could actually shoot. And I would, and this is the argument that I would take to anyone that says like, Oh, well, anybody can go out and kill a deer. You know, anyone can work a gun. The, the answer to that is no, it is a skill set. Yeah, well, you remember that not every person has, and I wanted to go back to this, and I'll try to tell the story the best as I can recall. And I'm pretty sure you were present it's when uh, our mother lived in her old house, and Joe Joe had the accident where he shot. This is uh, our brother that's a police officer, but he shot the garage yeah. one time. Uh, yeah, um, with our mother's. I don't know if it was new or not, but you know, one of those uh, Land Rover discoveries back when they were like tanks. But that's not the story that I'm about to tell, but this is similar. Do you remember this? I know what you're going to say. Joe shot a deer and it like, now I had a bad kill one time too, so I can't, but anyway, Joe shot the deer and it was in mom's driveway and you remember it started limping. Mm -hmm. Then he shot it again Uh and it slit 
the guts out of out of the deer and they fell onto the gravel but the deer was still walking yes so his second shot, and mom was watching like so every, everybody was watching this grazed its abdomen oh god this was horrible eviscerated it but it didn't kill it and i think joe was very unsettled at this point he wasn't sure what to do and uh so i I walked right up to it and shot Blue it in its head. Oh, I remember. I that. mean, with a pistol or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I had a pistol I, on my hip, and I yeah, shot it. Yeah, you don't it. forget stuff and like the thing that. It's like people say, like, "Oh my god, it's awful." But do, by me doing that was the most humane thing I could have done in that situation, right? Oh no, absolutely. That that was. I like mean, it's nasty to think of. It's the awful. first time I ever went hunting up at Dad's, I saw that deer and I shot it and blew both of its back legs off. At the, <laughs> do you remember that? Because you had to help. I, I had to gut yeah. a deer yeah. that had its its hind legs were blown off. Yep. Yeah. And I also had to. The deer couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. It right. was stuck, but it was alive, and I had to get up real close yeah. to it and do a headshot. That was horrible, and I've never hunted since then. That that scarred me. That was yeah. Horrible. Well, so. It makes you feel rotten doing that, but then you have to realize, so I took a bad shot to begin with, but this, this shot is ending its suffering. Yeah. And, and we did eat the meat. Yeah. Like, and it, it did. Get- exactly. And so, and I would say, so if you, if you take that thing and get it processed, uh, and put it in your freezer and consume it, or, you know, you, you take the hide off of it and make a rug or clothing or something out of it, whatever, like that's ethical. Uh, I th- hands down. I mean, there's no argument. It's ethical, you know, and I think that a hunter, you know, just it takes these miscues and missed shots and stuff to get someone to where they can absolutely ethically take an animal. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. not everyone can do this right out of the box. I mean, and that's why I try to articulate to people all the time is like, it is not a matter of just going out and pulling a trigger. <clears throat> it's about shaping your shots. You know, first of all, it's about taking a safe shot. That's the first and foremost thing. You hear every hunting season about someone getting, getting shot, shot accidentally. Yep. And that may, that may be because someone mistook a person as a deer. I can't honestly say how that would happen but that's a a reason cited for a lot of accidental shootings but i would say beyond that is people just aren't taking quote safe shots they're not considering what's behind the target Mm -hmm. you know and they're i'm not saying that like their buddy is standing right behind the deer but maybe there's someone's home in the distance uh behind the deer and there's not a there's not a, a hillside intervening between, you know what I mean? Um, so <clears throat> there are, you know, if you're a good, a well-educated hunter, um, there are shots that you're not going to take because of safety, you know, shots that you clearly could bag whatever game that you want, but you have to say, Oh, now wait a minute. This isn't the safest shot to take. Um, and then with that comes, you know, placing your shots correctly, like knowing, knowing the anatomy of the game, knowing where the vitals are, um, knowing, frankly, the, the ballistics of 
the cartridge that you're shooting. Um, it takes, you know, some practice and discipline actually shooting that firearm in advance of your hunting trip, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it takes the, the mitigation of any panic or excitement or, you know, whatever may ensue when you're confronted with this game that you want to take. Um, and uh, those are the things that you really can't articulate to a non hunter or non sportsman, right? And these people who would criticize you for killing deer or slaughtering deer or right. Killing rabbits or squirrels. Like, I don't know. I just, I tell people, and I have seriously backed off of my deer hunting in the last few years at the height of my deer hunting, I would shoot whatever I saw. And the reason for that was that uh, I realized the property damage that they caused. I had had collisions with deer in a couple of my vehicles. Um, you know, I can cite gardens of mine that have been decimated by deer, you know, so, so my mentality was I'm going to go out and thin the herd out, hopefully take some of these off the road and take some of these out of the garden. And I always did get the deer processed. I, you know, I either processed them myself or it took them to someone to get processed. If I didn't have space for the meat in my freezer, I would donate it to the local food bank, you know? So I, I'm able to sleep at night as a, as a hunter. Well, they, they say that in this, in our region, I think that there's three deer per per person or something like that. And, um, that I don't believe that that's correct. So in West Virginia, there's what, like almost 2 million people. That would mean there's 6 million deer. No, but I mean in Cabell County, I think. Well, so in Cabell County, I don't know what the population of Cabell County, I would guess a quarter of a million that that would mean there's 500,000 deer in Cabell County. And I don't think that's correct. May, there may be two deer for every hunter, for every licensed hunter. That's maybe, maybe what it is. Maybe Three that's the number hunter. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but even then, like that's a lot of fucking deer. Right. There's crap loads of white-tailed deer out there. And they do cause massive property damage. Whether that's your car getting smashed up or your garden getting eaten up or your fucking, or even just your landscape getting. Now what, now what, how would you, you know, maybe argue or say to someone that said, well, you know, you're, you were driving your car through their, their land and your house, you built your home and put your garden in there. You know, they've been here, they were here before you. Uh, okay. (laughs) I, I mean, I have to laugh at that because I, I think that's a very naive way of thinking. I mean, we're human beings for God's sake. We're, we're higher beings than a deer. I mean, we're going to settle where we want to. I mean, yeah, we're displacing these things. I mean, there's all this. Clearly that's why uh, bears are in people's trash all the time, you know, because we're, we're encroaching on their land, but I mean, just give me a break. We we can't be sparing the white-tailed deer. It's not as if they're endangered, for crying out loud. Right. There are millions and millions, maybe billions of them on this continent. Worldwide, there's certainly billions of them. They're not endangered. Um, 
I would there. I mean, I think they're widely considered pests almost. Well, right no, I, I can't say they're widely considered nuisance. They're, they're locally considered a nuisance, but, um, no, there are well thought out strategies to manage their population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, you just have to look at our state. There's, you know, one year they may have an extra season to take more female deer. Um, and then the next year they're like, okay, the population's fine. You can only go after the male deer or, you know, oh, this year we need to go and open up hunting in Barbersville park because that's too large of a sanctuary. You know, we're harboring too many deer there. You know what I mean? So there's, there's good strategies out there to, to mitigate their population. So no, like I, I won't entertain any of that crap that we're encroaching on their land. I mean, well, of course we are. There, what? How many other things were here before we came here that we don't give a second thought to? Like, why should I, why should I consider the life of a deer for mm-hmm. crying out loud? Um, no. And all I can tell people is that I strive in any hunt that I do to to take the animal as humanely as I possibly can. Yeah, my 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 hunting days are over, but that that time that I shot the hind legs off of that one deer, that that was my first and only. That was horrible. I mean, that truly, it I'd almost wiped that one out of my memory bank. It was so terrible. Um, well, that's just that's unfortunately how a lot of first hunts go for people. Mm-hmm. I think my first hunt ever, and I I came to. Um, by the way, I came into hunting later in my life. It didn't happen until I was in med school. Um, but my first trip out hunting was on dad's property. And, um, you know, I hate to admit this, but the, the, the first shot I ever took at a deer was not a safe one. I shot up at the horizon, meaning there was no backstop behind the bullet. But I had that buck fever, even though it was not a buck that I saw. It was a female, and I knew it was a female. Uh, but it was in season, so it was it was legal to do so. Um, I took this wild shot, and all, there were a bunch of other deer surrounding it. They all took off. You know, I lost sight of that deer that I had shot at in the scope. You know, because the recoil. You know, I, I was very early in the, my uh, marksmanship, you know, I, I had trouble, like I couldn't mitigate the recoil. So I lost sight of the deer I was shooting at. And my first thought was, shit, I missed it. It was a bad shot. I never should have done it. I said, however, I need to hike up this hill and see. I mean, maybe I struck it. Maybe there's a blood trail or something. And I hiked up this hill and there it is, Dead a shot through both lungs and the heart. And I would just say that first kill that I had was luck. Cause first of all, it was a bad shot, bad conditions. Me, a relatively, a relative novice to firearms. Um, and I dropped that deer right in his tracks. It didn't suffer at all. Gosh, I, I think all of my stuff's because hor- <laughs> I don't hunt enough. And, but anyway, but they're all horror stories. Like Brian Cox, we went hunting one time over at Mom's, and he shot a deer that 
I think you were around for this, but he shot a deer that uh, walked down the ravine and mm-hmm. died in the died oh, yeah. in the creek. Oh, and so the, you, <laughs> and I think you're you told us dragging that yeah, thing up the hills. Nope, nope. You know I can't help you guys. You know it's his. It was his first kill, and you you know you, there's like these traditional things. You know you gotta you gotta do you gotta skin it or you gotta gut it. Yeah, and you gotta drag it out of there. Yeah, no, that's and why so, I told him. Basically, you remember that? I do. Oh my I do remember God, that. It was that snowing. It. And now that you bring that up, I do remember it. And I, I don't think I was an asshole to him <laughs> at all. But and uh, he did it. But effectively, what I told him was like, "Fuck no, I'm not helping you drag that thing up." You know, a sixty degree. It was a hundred and some pounds at least. A hundred. Yeah, pounds. I said you're gonna you're gonna cut the guts out of it down there so that it's lighter. First of all. And your ass is going to drag it up I to you. the road. That was, te- that was horrible. <laughs> he was bragging about it, too. It was a little button buck. Yeah, he got me a buck here, and I yeah. shot it with, you know, old sights. It was yeah. old. And I'm like, um, yeah, except we literally about stroked out having to pull this thing up out of this ravine. You know, uh, now that you bring that up, that's um, that's a statistic. There are so many hunters every year that have heart attacks just by dragging deer out of the woods wow yeah and that well that's not even a mention of people that fall out of their damn tree stands and break their necks or break their spines somehow that's why i will never hunt from a tree stand i'm not comfortable doing it and i think that's just because of my position my occupation now i see all these people come in they're they're paraplegic or quadriplegic from falling out of their tree stand. I said, I just have said to myself, that's not going to be me. It's not worth it for me to climb up in a tree stand, just a bag of deer and fall out and break my fucking spine. Well, I don't want to condone getting like drunk or anything and hunting, but would you say it's good to take a couple shots beforehand to get, to take the, Oh yeah. So the edge off your shakes. Here's another, here's going to be another point of, um, criticism if anyone listens to this and I know they will, you, you've got some, you've got listeners out there, but, um, the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, if you're a person that needs it now, there's plenty of people out there that do not need any kind of, um, tremor mitigation or anything. You know what I mean? Um, I am one of these people that I, and this is very hard to articulate. I am one of these people that I think shoots uh, measurably better with a measurable blood alcohol content. Now, there's clearly a line that gets crossed that all of that deteriorates, right? Mm-hmm. And the shooter, i.e. me, may not realize that. Um. And that's why, like, you know, so if I go out hunting, I'm not going to bring a freaking 30 pack of beer with me or, uh, you know, a half gallon of whiskey with me. I'll just have a flask. Yeah. And I'll sip on it. And yeah, it's like the people so that it, fall out of the tree stands it, are sitting up there with a 30 pack mm, drinking. Well, no. And the people that, uh, that are dangerous yeah. are intoxicated. So I'm just talking about me. I think it, it steadies, it brings a foot. So a non-intoxicating dose of alcohol narrows my focus 
uh, it levels out any sort of tremor that I have. And I think it makes my breathing pattern more regulated, more regular. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. <clears throat> and those are the things that you need to be a precise shooter. Like, so you need a very regular, very slow breathing pattern. Um, you need a very a narrowed vision. Okay. And I'm not saying like tunnel vision, but you need to be able to block out the stuff in your periphery. And then you just need to very calmly be able to pull that trigger. You know, it's, and it's, you just have to get out on the range to know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that everyone should go to the range intoxicated. I'm not saying everyone should go to the range with a bottle of booze. You need to figure this out. I mean, like I said, there's plenty of people that can go out and do this without consuming alcohol. Plenty of people. Well, no, but that, then that, again, I would say there's there's a, enough people that would agree with me too. Yeah, when I wasn't asking you that, like personally, I was oh, just no, saying, you know. Um, but that is a good segue into some more of your other hobbies. Uh, <laughs> segue. Yeah, that sounds like the uh, vice presidential debates from last night. The segue. Yeah. So, what do you want to segue into? Well, I was going to say one another one of your big hobbies has been beer brewing. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, so this, this, are, are we hearing some babies waking up or something? Sounded like it. I don't know. I can't. All I hear is the headphones, which is good. Uh, it means that we have, uh, I've got a good seal on my ears, but, uh, no. So, um, the fermentation. Yeah. Nothing but the best here. Nice. The best fermentation headphones. sciences. <sighs> I learned this, uh, during, a semester in biochemistry or no, I'm sorry, in organic chemistry in college. Uh, so that would have been my sophomore year in college. Um, first semester, so uh, fall semester in, in college, sophomore year of college. Um, I had this epiphany. I said, Oh, this, we talked about the creation of uh, ethanol from sugars. And I said, Oh my gosh, this is how beer is made. And I went and talked to the professor about it. And he says, well, I'm going to blow your mind. This is not only how beer is made, but then you can apply physics principles to the resultant solution and you can make distilled spirits. And it was like mind blown right then and there. So my actual first um, dive into homemade alcohol was in the chemistry lab at West Virginia Wesleyan college. Um, I fermented Cairo corn syrup and I ran it through a distillation apparatus that I made by hand. Um, and no one can really appreciate that unless you've actually worked in a chemistry lab or a physics lab back. Th- and I don't, and I don't know what it's like nowadays, but back then we were provided uh, a lot of raw glass material and you could heat these glass things up and bend them and shape them into whatever you wanted. We, you know, I made double walled glass condon condensation tubes. You know, I made boiling flasks, all this shit. 
but the thing is, like, I formed uh, from scratch my own still in the chemistry lab. It was all glass. You know, no copper or anything involved in it. It was all glass. And, um, you know, I fermented this little... I The quantity was so small, Sam, this first time I did it, that uh, I think the yield, I might have had three or four ounces of probably 90% ethanol. So if you cut that down to like vodka strength, you know, we're talking eight ounces or something. eight or 10 ounces. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I drank it and it tasted like shit. It didn't taste like vodka or anything. I mean, it was clear. It was a, a neutral spirit, but it tasted like shit to me. And I said, you know, like at this point I'm, so I'm going to lose interest in the distilled spirits, but I'm still interested in fermentation science. And I learned how to brew beer. And, um, yeah, so that all came up from organic chemistry, second year of college. Wow. The first three or four batches of beer that I brewed were absolutely disgusting. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe even toxic. I don't know. I mean, no one, no one died from it, but everyone that drank it, including me, said, this is fucking disgusting. Then... Uh, you know, I, I continued this into medical school. And in medical school, this was really awesome. Uh, there was a couple of biochemistry instructors in med school who were like master home brewers. And they, I learned from them like what I had done wrong in college and where I could tweak this and, and make things better. Um, and I tried brewing some in med school. It's kind of okay it wasn't anything special then the issue was you know i went on to residency and um you know, things just got really busy i didn't do it but then you know came back and settled in huntington and uh, said yeah i'm gonna brew beer and uh, like you said like i take everything to the nth degree yeah i mean i looked this up and said I'm a, i want a beer brewing apparatus and i spent uh, i think like maybe 7,500 bucks on the apparatus that I have today. That's like largely automated. I mean, Sabco. Uh, yeah. The, the Sabco, uh, uh, brewmaster system. Um, and man, I have, I have brewed a lot of good beer. I haven't, I haven't brewed for a while. Again, just, I don't have time anymore. Dude, but that stuff, a lot of the stuff you've made is honestly been better than the stuff down at the peddler. That oh making. yeah. No, I, and uh, Chris Reese, who I, I've had on my podcast once, um, he and I, you know, we we bounced around this idea that we would make a brewery. I mean, obviously, it's a pipe dream. But so he and I did a lot of recipe development. We we brewed some awesome freaking beer, he and I. And we, we entered into a bunch of contests, and we won medals. Hmm. Um, I don't know, like six or eight medals and uh these uh, brew contests i've had some of your all's beers and yeah. my god they oh, are they i love doing it uh, I, I mean it's it's relaxing to do it because you you know there's a, there's a process that takes like four or five six hours from start to finish and it's relaxing because you just you're in the zone you're doing this stuff and you're thinking like what is this going to create in the end and there's all these aromas and 
uh, that come up in the garage, you know, it smells like freaking a bakery, you know, it smells like bread when you're doing it. Um, and you know, in the end you're creating alcohol, you're creating beer, you're creating a very desirable product. And in the end, you know, every batch that I turned out was good, you know, no downside to it. Yeah, no, they were. Fantastic. And then, um, there was at one point, uh, so home brewing beer, by the way, is 100% legal. There's no law against it. The, when you cross the legal line is if you try to sell it to somebody. Okay. So there was one point in my life I extrapolated that the the legality of beer brewing, I uh, assumed that making distilled spirits was legal, unless I sold it. You know, so everyone everyone knows that moonshine, you know, selling moonshine is illegal, right? I mean, it's all done under the table and mm-hmm. you know in these back alleys. You know, people selling this stuff out of the back of their pickup trucks, like. Everyone knows that the sale of moonshine is illegal, but I made the assumption that the production of moonshine was legal based on my experience brewing beer. Okay. So I took that and I, I got on the internet and found a place that sold, um, distillation apparatuses, apparati, apparatuses, whatever. And I bought one from them and I started working on a recipe. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd tried several, ba- I tried making corn whiskey and you know, the, the taste that I wound up with was just not good. Then I said, well, I'm just going to make rum. I'm going to ferment cane sugar. You know, and I ordered all this molasses from some restaurant supply company and uh, I was fermenting that blackstrap molasses and running that through the still. And the stuff I got out of there was awesome. It was rum. It tasted great. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I get this letter from the uh, ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Um, and they say, they said, uh, I'm paraphrasing this, but they said, we know that you purchased a still from this company. Uh, you have not registered it with us. If you happen to be using this steel, you are in violation of federal law. And they, they included, um, a newspaper article from somewhere down in Florida where they had just busted these illegal, uh, distilling operations. And, um, it turns out that the, the, if you get caught doing that, um, it's a minimum or no maximum. I don't It didn't say the minimum, but it said maximum 25 years in prison, maximum $250,000 fine. Yeah. I bet you that's scary. I mean, wasn't in there a famous guy that, that died that ended up. You're probably talking about popcorn. Sutton. Yeah. Popcorn. Sutton. Yeah. No, but anyway, so I, I made the incorrect assumption that it was legal to distill stuff as long as I didn't sell it. It turns out it is illegal to distill a single fucking drop of alcohol without paying federal taxes on it. Wow. Yeah, no, it's bullshit. It's literally a revenue issue 
with the federal government, right? So I think they've calculated that, you know, the amount of beer that someone can make cannot be taxed like the amount of distilled spirits someone makes, right? So, mm-hmm. so, they, so they leave the, the home production of beer and wine alone. But if you want to fire up a still at home, you better be paying taxes on that or else they're going to put your ass in jail. So when I, after I got that letter, I have not run another batch through that still. Um, maybe that was just a scare tactic. I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to go to federal jail or right. pay $250,000 in fines for, you know, for making a couple gallons of freaking rum, you know, and it's not even as if I was profiting off this. Like I would never profit. I, would I give it to my friends? Hell yes. Would I ever charge my friends for it? Fuck no. I've never charged anyone for the beer that I've made. And right. I've shared that with people all over the place. Yeah, I think it's it's ludicrous. No, it is. It's awful. Yes, that was another hobby is the uh, production of alcohol. Um, and I've kind of taken that to the extreme. What else, buddy? What else have you observed that I've uh, hobbyized? You just, I mean, you know, so many different things. I had stuff off that I had, I had thought of. We've been talking, for, or, you know, you've been talking for quite a while about stuff and kind of thinking about all the stories you've already told. Um. You think anything? Well, how about um, I don't share this with a lot of people, although plenty of people have heard this. How did I select anesthesiology as a medical specialty? Oh yeah, we'd never got yeah. into that. Uh, and there is a there's actually a pretty decent story behind this. So uh, I've uh, I've intimated here that I wasn't. I wasn't 100% clear that I was going to go into medicine when I went into college, but eventually I determined that I would. Once I got into medicine, I think I had this uh, idea, like many other young medical students have, is that I'm going to save the world. I'm going to help humanity be better. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. (laughs) And what better way could I do that than to be a pediatrician? Help out little helpless children. Okay, that was my initial thought when I went into medical school. I want to be a pediatrician. Well, I very very quickly realized that's not for me. Oh, hell no. Um, I learned that, yeah, children are impossible to communicate with. It's very difficult to figure out what's wrong with them. And then I learned that a lot of parents are just absolutely whack jobs that uh, that I didn't want to deal with. So all of my hopes and dreams uh, of being a pediatrician were dashed very early in medical school. So then, then I had to figure out, well, what the hell is it that I do want to do? And um, yeah, I kind of uh, independently developed this algorithm that is actually like an established algorithm now in medical school. Um, I first had to look at, 
what what specialties were available to me. Okay. Um, so I've already told you that I I was an excellent student in high school. I was a pretty good student in college, but when I got to medical school, I think I I told you I struggled with a lot of the the memorization stuff, which meant there were some chapters and some disciplines that I didn't do so well in. So I, I would call myself a mediocre medical student. And, um, there are, there were tests to establish metrics on this, you know, that all of us had to take. And so, so I have proof that I was just a mediocre medical student. What that means is, um, Unfortunately, there are certain specialties not available to a mediocre medical student. Now, that's a a very broad uh, characterization. I mean, obviously, any person could get into any specialty, specialty they want, but it's very challenging to get into the highly desirable yeah, the coveted specialties if you have low test scores. I mean, that, and that's just a fact of life. So they call them the lifestyle specialties. And those include things like uh, dermatology. Okay. Dermatologists look at rashes and freaking melanomas. And now I know that's a, an oversimplification. I'm sure if there's a dermatologist that ever hears this podcast, I'm sure they're going to be uh, right up my ass over this comment, but that's the reality. They, they deal with a very narrow spectrum of medicine. And I would argue that they're never on call. Why would they be on call? Because there's not a dermatology emergency that it, it just doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. That sounds, yeah. Here, try this cream. Um, ophthalmology is another lifestyle, uh, especially in medicine. You know, you, you work Monday through Friday, you hammer out a bunch of cataracts, which are mindless operations that take 15 minutes each to do. You can treat 30 people a day. Um, and you don't have to know anything else about medicine. You just have to know about the eye. It's very simple. And there are very few ophthalmology, uh, ophthalmological emergencies. Uh, so it's, there are, there are emergencies in the branch. Don't get me wrong, but they're few and far between. You know, it's, it's basically if someone has penetrating trauma to their eyeball, their globe is what it's called. And, you know, I, I most commonly see this at work um, in someone who's operating a grinder, for example. Oh, and it slings and something. And a piece of metal goes flying up into the eye and it punctures it. So the ophthalmologist has to come in and repair that. Um, it just doesn't happen a lot. So those people are they're on call, but they literally never have to come to work. You never have to do anything after hours. Uh, pathology, I would argue, is a lifestyle especially. So pathology, they don't ever have to deal with a person who's alive. 
they never have to interact with a person at all. They're, they only deal with human tissue, you know, and, uh, and they have all the time in the world that they need to sit down, uh, over the microscope and figure out what's going on. Um, it's an invaluable specialty. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, I, but I just couldn't get into that. Um, I don't know. Others, radiology is a lifestyle specialty because in large part they're working on shifts and a lot of their stuff is uh, capable of being done at home now. You know, they can pipe all these images into the computer at the house and, you know, it's not like they ever have to interact or engage with a patient. They just look at x-rays and cat scans and stuff and say, oh, here's, Here's what's wrong. So you can do that from home. Mm-hmm. Unless a garbage truck backs into your uh, Ethernet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Did you read that article on WSAZ? Oh, today? no, I didn't. Mason County, West Virginia, the whole entire county couldn't do virtual learning because a garbage truck oh, backed Jesus. into a telephone pole. Yeah, so, uh, so anyways, <laughs> I could go on and on and on about so right. there's certain lifestyle um, uh, specialties in medicine. And those are the ones that get gobbled up by the people with the high test scores. So I, I had to automatically exclude myself from, well, I excluded myself from those specialties that had a lot of patient interaction. First of all, and that sounds awful, but just, I don't know, it's just not my personality really to sit down all day long and interact with people. I didn't enjoy that. I had to exclude myself from the lifestyle ones because my test scores weren't that great. Um, so then I looked at, well, what what can I get into? Um, literally, anesthesiology was the only one that rose to the top. You know, so uh, at the time, it was not considered a lifestyle job, a lifestyle specialty because there was some controversy going on as to whether uh, anesthesiologists would be relevant in the future. You know, there, uh, Bill Clinton had come out with his whole, uh, you know, healthcare plan that suggested they would do away with physician anesthesiologists. So no one was looking into it, especially at the time. Um, and it was, it was maybe considered a lifestyle job because they had a lot of time off, but at the time they weren't making a lot of money. So, I mean, lifestyle, yes and no. Uh, but what, what I got from that is like, yes, I have to interact with people, but only for a very finite length of time, you know? Um, so I took that and ran with it. And then once I got into the, training for that actually let's take a step back so yeah you did like a year here yes, still in ana- so anesthesiology is a four-year program however the first year has to be done in what they call a clinical base year and that can be done in either general surgery general medicine i think emergency medicine is acceptable i think pediatrics is acceptable but anyways you have to do something non anesthesiology for the first year uh, just to get your feet wet. Now, I, and really it's just to acquaint you with the hospital, like the, the, the system of the hospital 
the system of medical records, uh, the system of interacting with other specialists and consultants, that's what that's there for. You know, that year does not get you ready in any way, shape, form, or fashion to quote one of our leaders, local leaders here, uh, to be an anesthesiologist. It just gets you accustomed with how medicine works in general, I think. Yeah, so um, I <clears throat> here's the timeline. So at the end of my, or nearing the end of my medical school, I, you know, I submit uh, or I, I, I sign up for uh, interviews at all these anesthesiology programs. And they're going to tell you like either yes or no, we'll interview you or no, we won't interview you. You know, like, yeah, we think you're a good candidate or thanks, but no thanks. You're a terrible candidate. And uh, yeah, I had a handful of interviews, not as many as I thought I would get. Um, but I interviewed the, the, the best interview I had, I thought was at, uh, Allegheny general hospital in Pittsburgh. And, you know, I just, I felt really good about it. They gave me a lot of positive feedback. Um, I loved staying up there. That was actually, it was very interesting. The day that I interviewed up there was, um, Marshall, Marshall university was in one of their first, one of their first ever bowl games. I can't remember which bowl game it was, but motor city bowl. It may have been one of the Motor City Bowls because they did that for a couple years at least. Yeah. But anyways, this they they were getting killed in the whole first half of the game. I mean, they were down by like – I wish I could remember the exact details, but I feel like they were down by 40 or 60 points or something. And I remember I was in my hotel room. I had already interviewed. I was laying in my hotel room watching this game. I was just like, fuck it. I heard you suck. And I turned the game off. No, 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 I take that back. Let me let's let me start over. The night before my interview, yeah, this is how it went down. The night before my interview, I watched this Marshall game, and they were getting killed. And I said, "Fuck this! <laughs> They're gonna lose. I need to get some sleep for my interview the next day." That's how it went down. And I went to bed assuming that they'd lost. I went into that interview the next day and the chairman of that department says like, man, oh, so you come out of Marshall. How about that game last night? What about the herd go herd? And I was like, yeah, uh, that was a good game. He's like, man, can you believe they pulled that out in the end in like a triple overtime or something? (laughs) And I was like, I didn't tell him, but I was like, oh shit. I didn't even watch that to the end. That turned out to be a good game. Um, Yeah. So anyways, I (laughs) got off track there. I um, yeah, interviewed at that place, uh, Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, and matched there. The The match process is it's this bullshit thing that exists, I think, only in medicine, where you go and interview with a series of places, and you rank all these places, 1 through 10, or 1 through 20, or 1 through 100, however many people you interview with. And then those programs, in turn, rank, rank you. you one to however many candidates they interview. And if there's a match occurs, if, you know, if you say like, oh, well, I picked this program as number five on my list. And then, oh, that program picked me as number five on their list of candidates. That's a match. And you get to go there. 
Um, so anyways, I matched this program, Allegheny General Hospital, and um, but I had to do this year of general surgery at Marshall University. Partway through my year of general surgery, I learned that uh, that Allegheny General Hospital residency closed, no longer existed. And I was, and that was like an absolute low point in my life because I was like, well, there, the way this system works, like I'm probably not going to get in to another residency because I don't have the opportunity to go interview during this year. You know, there's this concept of the scramble where you can just fall into empty spots. But the thing is there's, there's not empty spots in anesthesia. There's empty spots in general medicine and general surgery all over the place, but most of the other subspecialties are full every year. So I was depressed the whole remainder of that year thinking like there's no fucking future for me. I'm going to have to just be a surgeon now. It's going to suck. Um, one of my medical school colleagues or, uh, or classmates, actually, uh, Alvin Castillo, he called me up one day. He was doing so. He matched at a place called West Penn Hospital, the other or another hospital system in Pittsburgh. He called me. Uh, he was doing his internship in general medicine in Huntington. He says, "Hey, you know, I know, I know what happened to you at Allegheny General. I want you to look at this other place, West Penn Hospital, because I know that they have an opening." So I immediately called this place, and their chairperson says. Uh, so you're, you're buddies with Al Castillo? And I said, yeah, we went to med school together, same class. You know, I see him every day at the hospital. He's doing medicine. I'm doing general surgery. And this, and I was talking to the chairperson at the program. He's like, oh, man, we fucking loved Al when he came to interview here. Any friend of Al, we're willing to hire him. He says, but I need you to come up here for an interview. That's awesome. And uh, so I was like, so I had to get time off from my uh, internship in general surgery. So I had to talk to our father. It's like, dad, I need to go up here and interview. Okay, whatever. So I went up there and uh, met with this guy, Jeff grass (laughs) and the chairperson of that uh, program. And and we're talking about like, Oh, are you you into Steelers football? Well, no, I was kind of a Bengals fan because Bengals are the local team in Huntington, but Steelers storied program you know heard a lot about them sounds like a solid football team you know parts baseball nah you know i I, i've been to some reds games you know i'm a diehard major league baseball fan but i don't you can't nail me down to any team you know we we love the pirates here you know ice hockey at all like uh no i mean there's there's not ice hockey in huntington I know about the NHL. I've heard of the Penguins. He goes, oh, man, so you got so much to learn here in Pittsburgh. And I'm thinking to myself, like, do I have the job or do I not have the job? Like, what's going on here? Like, I, we didn't talk about anesthesiology or medicine at all. We talked about the sports in Pittsburgh with this guy. And then I think he must have sensed my distress. And he looks at me. He goes, oh, David, David. Calm down. You've got the job. You've got the job. 
I just want to tell you about all this shit that there is going on in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was just that's like, awesome. I was like, oh gosh. So yeah. So, you know, one might say that I actually slid into anesthesiology, but I'm telling you, once I started an ant, I thrived on it. All this stuff in medicine that didn't make sense to me before clicked. Like, all, like I told you before, how the lungs work, how the heart works, how the kidneys, liver, all this shit works. The way that I learned it in anesthesia, like you, you, you saw this stuff working right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So like you might call it applied physiology or applied anatomy. It's all happening in human beings in real time right in front of me. So then it all made sense. It wasn't just that I was reading it in a textbook like I did in medical school. Right. So things clicked in my brain. I was like, oh, my God, this is how all this stuff works. And, you know, I, I hesitate to call myself an expert in it because I think that, you know, our it's a continual process of learning in medicine. I and mean, it truly is. I think medicine is, is unique from any other occupation in that respect. Um, but I think I'm close to being an expert in the specialty. Um, I mean, I have, I have a certificate from the American board of anesthesiology that says I'm, yeah, you're, I'm uniquely qualified to practice the specialty. Uh, but I still consider myself a student and a trainee at all times. And it just because everything evolves. Yeah. Uh, in medicine, I think, if any doctor, if any physician is honest with themselves, they would consider themselves a student ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, man, I, this conversation, it's kind of gone full circle. Like it ended really well with that, you know, not that I'm trying to end it, but, you know, started out with your, your schooling and, and kind of ended, ended, ended saying <laughs> that you're still a student. Um, yeah. and we've talked for quite a while. I think we could talk more. I mean, you've talked a lot of let you just kind of go, but it's your story to tell. Um, and I thought it'd be good to, to, to try to get you to tell your story, but kind of have us have it around your hobbies and your, Oh, I think dude, this went well, didn't it? It did. And, um, if you weren't over there falling asleep on me, I've seen your eyes closed a no. few times. Um, um Dude, these I'm kids. Well, there, I'm, there's so many other things we could talk about. I mean, I've been listening to the conversation, but I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I'm, uh, I'm tired. These kids. You know, you got two the same age. Just wear you buddy, down. Yeah, and I've I've got to tell you, I was heartbroken today when Otto um, cried. Didn't would, want you to hold. Would him. not let me hold him. Oh, he turned around. He held on to me with a death grip. Yes, he would not let go of your shirt. Uh, that was heartbreaking. Cause I think kids like me in general, but no, nah, but I get that. I, I don't know. They're, um, I'm sorry. But one of our, one of our baby girls, Rylan is so totally attached to Megan. Like if Megan's in the house, I basically don't exist, <laughs> but, but Rowan, Rowan loves both of us. Like she, she's an equal opportunity clinger. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Otto. Man. Otto wasn't real keen on me feeding him until a month ago. Are you breastfeeding too? Oh, he just sucks right on that thing. I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> no, he. But he'll he'll lean in for a kiss. Otto will now. Like tonight, you know, I yeah. picked him up to hold him, and he looked right at me, and then he moved his little head forward to give me a kiss. But uh, you know, uh, 
everybody, thanks for thanks for yeah. listening. Hopefully, you made um, it this far, and we'll probably talk again. I'm and sure. I'll uh, I'll tell you what. So I have to I have to put my two cents in. Of course, in here. You're uh, I'm looking down at the timer. It's just two hours fifteen minutes. You're still nowhere in the ballpark of my three hour interview with Aaron Moore. Um, but no, any time that you want to continue this conversation, I would love to be a guest on your show, man. I'd be honored to be back on your show and I can do a lot yeah. more of the talking. And it'll, and it'll happen. We'll, um, I, there's going to be a lot of cross coverage. I wanted to talk more it. about your, you know, your, your alcohol, like consumption, not like the amount, but well, that the, sounds awful. The, the types of things that you like. I want and, to talk about your problem with alcohol. <laughs> I could talk about that for me, uh, dude. That um, no, but like the kind of like you've talked about bourbon, but we talk about you could talk more about beer and sure. But we just kind of got into that you were brewing it, but not yeah much else. Um, but uh, you know, let's end it on this note, and I'll go up and try to get to bed. I got to get up early, and um, David, man, it was awesome letting you tell a little bit of your life story and. you know, inform the listeners of, of mine about everything that you've been doing. Well, uh, your, your stories are always great. Mine well, are- thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me express myself. I love this format. Um, yeah, I just, I'm thankful that we just didn't get on any uh, touchy subjects. Oh, yeah. Tonight. I mean, I, uh, people must think that's all I want to talk about. It's not. But, uh, it's, it's hard not to hit on some of those things when you're talking about school and stuff going on. Yeah. But, uh, well, uh, Take it easy, listeners, and uh, and hopefully you tune in again. See you, David. Of nature.
little secret I'm a rock of ages like a sad old man this will be our little secret 